electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Happy Friday, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I am Brian, and for Kelly, here's what's ahead. Several Fed heads throwing a little hawkish haymaker at the market. Can stocks really rally longer term, even if the Fed keeps hiking? A new superstar, Goldman Sachs, here to break it down. Speaking of breakdowns, oil limping into the weekend. It is down big all week. Is it a recession risk, or is it something else? And if you're sick of stocks and can't stand crypto, how about investing in art? And it's not just for the super rich. We are going to paint that picture coming up with Robert Frank. But before we duct tape a banana or throw a shark in formaldehyde, let's toss it to the Surat of stocks, Dom Chu. This is not Art Basel over here right now. It's Art Engel with Cliff. I love basil. Tastes great. There it is. Basil does taste great. Anyway, from the market standpoint, it's been a modest day so far. We've seen gains and losses. But for the S&P 500, we're tilting towards the lower end of the range today. Now, we're down about four points, 39.42 the last trade there. At the highs of the session, for some context, we were up 33 points. Very solid update. At the lows of the session, down 11. So, again, tilting towards that downside of the range, off just about one-tenth of one percent. Two-tenth of one percent gains for the Dow Industrials, 33,601 the last trade there in the Nasdaq Composite, 11,080 the last trade, down 65 points, roughly one-half of one percent. Brian mentioned that crude oil trade. WTI, West Texas Intermediate, U.S. benchmark prices now at the lowest level since the end of September as we head towards that all-important travel season for Thanksgiving week. Now, WTI crude currently below 80 bucks a barrel, 79.10, down 3%. Similar percentage move for ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, $87.04. Some of the worst performers in the S&P today, Diamondback Energy on the exploration and production side, down about 4.5%. Even majors like Chevron, down 1.5%. And the energy sector spider, you can see, down about 1.5% as well. From a stock-specific standpoint, one name stands out in the wake of what's happening with FTX and the Royals through cryptocurrency right now. That's the U.S.-based exchange operator Coinbase. Shares are down 8% right now, due in part to a downgrade by analysts at Bank of America to a neutral rating. They think... That Coinbase is nowhere near, not close to being FTX, but that it's not immune to the downside being put from a macro perspective on the entire crypto industry. For that reason, they've taken down their estimates and target price. Coinbase shares wants to watch Bride down 8% right now. We'll see if it sticks that way momentum-wise. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, this FTX story a long way from being over, and there's a lot of collateral damage. Dom Chu, thank you. All right, so if you're wondering why yields were all over the place this week, they sent the stock market up, then they sent the stock market down before sending it back up, well, look no further than the Federal Reserve. Steve Leisman is here to try to wrap up a wild week of Fed speak. How many? I'm trying to count how many speeches you had to listen to this week. I, I, don't, be, don't feel sympathy for me. I love my job, but I guess there is a limit, uh, uh, Brian. 
We heard from Fed presidents 16 times this oh. week, some of them twice, but 16 total speeches and Q&As to listen to. And along with the data, just as you said, Brian, it created sharp movements in yields and the outlook for Fed rate hikes. On Wednesday, I spoke to San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly. You know, we used to think of her as a dove, but didn't sound very dovish in our interview. Pausing is off the table right now. It's not even part of the discussion. Now, the Fed's Esther George from Kansas City earlier in the week said it was hard to see inflation coming down without, quote, painful outcomes. And yesterday, St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard, he upped the ante on everyone. He showed a chart. His modeling showed Fed rates could peak under dovish assumptions at 5 percent, but go as high as 7 percent under hawkish assumptions that he put in his model. Now, today, Boston Fed President Susan Collins, a little more dovish, maybe, sort of, told me there are risks, but we could yet escape this rate hike cycle without large-scale unemployment. I do see a pathway in which we're able to do that without um, needing to increase unemployment um, more than some modest amount. And I'm not going to put numbers on that. At the same time, I'm very realistic. There are a lot of risks. Um, There are no certainties here. The upshot, the Fed Fed peak rate traded as low as 488. Now we're trading well over 5%. I will say this, more and more hawkish or dovish, it seems Fed officials are not pushing back on a terminal rate that is 5% or higher. Like I said, Brian, I love the job, but it was an awful lot this week. And shout out to my producer, Betsy Spring, who reads them along with me. She does, and she does a great job. I had 12 and a half as the over-under, but I, I guess I got caught up in the weather. Uh, <laughs> our, <laughs> fact, and that's a shout-out, by the way, to your Buffalo, because who knows what's going on up there. All right, enough with the weather. Steve, December 14th, is that the next meeting date, correct? And then we have that blackout period, what is it, a week before then? So things should sort of come off the radar a little bit soon? Yeah, there there will be a quiet period. It begins on the Monday before that meeting. I think there's still one more week left before that starts. Uh, The meeting is on the 13th, the announcement on the 14th. Um, It looks like the market is coalescing, Brian, around a 50 basis point hike. And then talking about 25s after that is worth bringing up the Goldman Sachs piece from last night where they said, they agreed with Collins, by the way, that the U.S. narrowly escapes a recession. At the same time, they upped their forecast for the peak rate being in the five and a quarter range. So it does seem higher, but whether or not we still get out of this without a recession remains uh, something the market's going to have to debate. I don't know, Brian, if DraftKing will take that over under on Fed speeches bet from you. Yeah, and we'll see if the line moves based on, you know, the Leisman factor. You're always the wild card, Steve. Thank you, Josh Allen. Crazy, thank you. Of of economics reporters. All right, so speaking of Goldman Sachs, by the way, and if all this Fed talk and the real risk of an economic slowdown has your big brain spinning a bit, do not worry, you are not alone. It's a bit of a confusing time. So let's try to make sense of it all with one of our favorite people, not as Elizabeth Burton, client investment strategist at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. You may recognize her from states formerly known as Hawaii, where you ran the pension fund. You moved like seven time zones. And we're glad you're here on set, Elizabeth. Good to see you. Good to see you, Brian. So the Fed call this morning from your economists is what, no recession next year or real close, the razor's edge? Think closer to the razor's edge, where our base case remains that there's not going to be a recession. There'll be a soft-ish landing. I believe we're still pricing in around 35%. So uh, probably a little more optimistic than the market. Yeah. And then you've got, I'm going to call it UDO is your sort of investment thesis, not UFO. 
Uh, and that is sort of up and then down and and up and active and out. What 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 do we do right now? Where are we going on the risk spectrum? Where are we going on the quality spectrum? Sure. So let me qualify. For, for right now, I'm getting a lot of questions about where investors should put their money to work, particularly because a lot of folks are underweight equities. So right now, I would say go up, go active. When we have some clarity around our situation from a rate standpoint and inflation plate, I would say go down, go out. So up, active, up in quality across equities, fixed income, basically everywhere, and go active where you can, where it makes sense, and go out later and go down later in quality and in duration and out, meaning out of the U.S. So basically, if you're buying stocks, if you're buying bonds, if you already own them, if I'm hearing you right, you want to own the best stuff. Sure, yes. This is not the time to take flyers. I would say, at least on the equity side, number one, I would say there's still value in value and you want to be a little bit more defensive there. And you want to make sure that you're not hugging your benchmarks too much. If you hug your benchmarks, you're going to get exposed to things like past winners, not future winners. I want to say I'm not, a, I'm not much of a hugger. We're not really allowed. <laughs> I can't really HR sort of, you know, it doesn't like that. What do you mean by hugging your benchmark? Sure. So just take the small cap indices, for example. You're going to get overexposed there very specifically to past losers, right? You're going to get exposed to unprofitable companies. So if you can take a little bit more tracking error, you want to go a little bit more active where it makes sense from a cost basis, from a tracking error basis, from an inefficiency basis. I would say that's in equities and in fixed income. I also would say, to your point earlier, that it is the time to, to get out of cash and get back into the fixed really? income markets. Yes. Is that treasuries? Is that munis? Where are we buying bonds? So for right now, I would say you should look to the shorter end of fixed income. So, for example, like a one-year U.S. Treasury rate, I think last time I checked is around 460-something. That would have to go up about 400 basis points in order for you to miss out on the extra coupon income there. So I think that is a pretty good case versus your bank account. Uh, I think we could also start looking at, at the 10-year. There are There is still rates risk, right? So I think staying on the shorter end for now makes sense. And then to my you know, down and out theme, you can go out longer duration once we get some more clarity. It's, yeah. We were joking. You heard that you were sitting here with a conversation with Steve. And you know, we try to make it fun. Why not? It's Friday. But at the same time, I do wonder, all this Fed talk, is it hard for you and even your team, some of the brightest people on the planet, to keep track of all this? <laughs> to keep track of the Yeah, factors. one says one thing, the other says how do you how do you filter through that noise? So I think the most important thing for us is focusing on what that terminal rate will, will be. I think we're less concerned about the incremental rate hikes. And we've been fairly consistent over the past couple months within a range. We obviously changed our forecast yesterday. But I think that's the most important thing. I also think there is some consistency in the fact that they want to be taken very seriously. Yeah. So I think there still are risks out there. Um, so I wouldn't be shifting anything just quite yet. Has, has the Fed, and I'm going to use the word damage sort of colloquially, has the Fed damage to stocks and bonds? Has it all been done? In other words, if we... If we get a half a point rate hike in December, maybe another quarter point in January, has the market already shifted? Nobody should be surprised at this point. I think there's still room to fall in equities. I don't think we've seen them get as cheap as they probably should. Really? For example, look at the earnings that just came out. Yes, they looked pretty good, but we're going into the Christmas season. Do you remember Christmas last year when you went to the store and nothing you wanted was on the shelves? So one, we're gonna to have to see if supply chains really did get it worked out. Two, if we want to buy the inventory items that are still there. Three, if the new pricing pressures, wage pressures 
are enough to sort of keep margins high. And then finally, yeah. we have to see that there's persistence there, right? So we've been hearing that there's going to be some discounting next year. So we need more than one data point, one quarter yeah. of earnings resilience to kind of see what happens going forward. Anywhere in the world that you like, like specifically internationally that looks good? I mean, I hear the thesis about Europe, and I'm going to go back to Europe soon, and Europe's going to have a much tougher 2023 than it had this year, believe it or not. People think the crisis is over. It's not because they've never refilled just on, on uh, imports and, and pipelines, non-Russia pipelines. But you can make the case for Europe like, well, things were so bad that the only place they can go is up. Do you buy into stuff like that? Look, I think it's still too early there. Yeah. I think we've still got some risks. Look, and even emerging markets are, are kind of a mixed bag there. You've got some that have already taken care or started, uh, you know, their rate hikes way above the United States. But then we've still got questions happening in the commodities markets, right, that could affect how those investments turn out as well. So I would say for right now, we're mostly U.S. focused. Okay, yeah, because we, we feel a little more insulated than a lot of the world that may still have a lot of problems next year. Great to have you on set, Elizabeth Burton. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely appreciate that. Goldman Sachs Asset Management. All right, we got a quick market flash for you. Shares of Ticketmaster parent Live Nation sinking in the last few minutes. You know why? The Justice Department opening up an antitrust investigation into the company. That, according to the New York Times, this all actually has to do with Taylor Swift because the company is facing backlash over the chaotic rollout of sales for Taylor Swift's upcoming tour. We're going to reach out to the DOJ and the company. We'll get comments from either one. We're going to keep you updated. I saw somebody on Twitter posted something like FTX found 15 Taylor Swift tickets on their balance sheet valued at $3.4 billion. They're probably not that far off. Whoever that was, that was funny. All right, coming up, we're going to get crude. Why oil is down even as the big rush of sanctions are about to kick in. Plus, this week, been pretty mellow for markets. But get ready. The options story on why things could get a little more crazy ahead. Mike Coe's up with that. Oil's down. We're back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. As I showed you before the break, oil prices, they're sliding right now. Higher rates and weaker demand in China may be taking their toll. Crude oil below 79. It's on pace for its worst week since April. Now, all this, as things are going to get pretty hot soon. Listen to this. The White House getting set to sell another 15 million barrels from our emergency reserves. They're already at 40-year lows. That sale, by the way, kicks off December 1st. 
which is three days before OPEC meets again on a Sunday, which OPEC could, could again cut their output. And that's four days before the big new EU sanctions on Russia keep, kick in. Joining us now to make sense of it all is Ed Morse, City's global head of commodities research. And you've been one of the few out there that has not been sort of more wildly bullish on oil. And obviously that's been the correct call, Ed. What are you seeing that makes you have a bit of an outlier view? Well, I think what we're seeing on the outlier view is really the supply demand balance. And uh, we've been tracking it pretty closely. Some of it's related to the SBR growth. But we moved globally in terms of things we can observe. That includes oil on land, in inventory, oil in transit at the seas, and oil that's floating uh, uh, in the in the seas. And we moved from May, June at the bottom of a six-year range to close to the top of a six-year range. So oil markets have actually been getting looser physically than most people have perceived. We thought this was going to be the case, and it is the case. But there are other things at work now where the headwinds associated with economic growth, and you mentioned some of the main ones, Fed rate and other other central bank rate increases on the horizon, the palpable slowdown in Chinese uh, growth with uh, the the COVID lockdowns continuing for a while. That means any pickup in China and Chinese growth is going to be pushed back to the end of the year. Um, And we had a, a kind of outlier thing that happened this week with a pipeline in the United States that connects the internal market with the external market broke down and it's not likely to be fixed for a couple of weeks, maybe a month. Uh, And that means that oil being exported out of the U.S. is not going to be quite as robust as it's been. And that means more inventory is going to be building in the U.S. And that's what's basically responsible for this flip that we've seen in WTI, the weakening of the front, partly triggered by a sell-off because Mm -hmm. the market was overly long, but also triggering what we call a contango with the prompt month being lower than the second month. Very unusual for what's been a very tight market. And that's the concern that the U.S. is going to turn into um, into a, a blocked market with uh, with an inability to export to the degree we have been. So OK, so that so Ed, hold on, there's yeah. a lot a lot there. So I get the U.S. part, but what I'm hearing, I think, is we could see U.S. prices go down because of these sort of wonky export things you're talking about. But what does that mean for the rest of the world? It's a global oil market. And you got the well, EU sanctions about to kick in on December 5th. We have a bunch of bullish things in the market that the market has not responded to. One of them is, of course, the EU December 5th sanctions, which basically eliminates seaborne Russian crude imports into Europe. We have higher tanker rates that are resulting with a real tightness in the tanker market, making the costs of moving oil uh, into Europe even more expensive. And we have the first month now of the OPEC cuts and tanker tracking seems to indicate that OPEC really is down a million barrels a day. Saudi Arabia may be half of that amount uh, as opposed to where they were a month ago. So that's a bullish sign in the market. But uh, but the market is perceiving that economic growth is really being tapered in a very significant way. And we're going to have to wait and see because there's so much that is in the way of financial flows that are misleading us as to where the market balances really are. So uh, we'll see what happens, whether this sell-off ends and reverses next week. Because I do wonder, and, and you know, the OPEC meeting, we had the, the output cut at the last one. We know that $90 Brent number, it kind of, the Saudis kind of like to defend it, maybe. I mean, you do, you wonder if there's a possibility, and we'll be there, will OPEC cut those quotas again? 
Well, they could do it and they might not do it. They might wait a month. Uh, they had reasons to do what they did. And now I think they're they're facing a whole bunch of unknowns. Uh, but yes, they are meeting on December 4th, as you indicated. And uh, and if this continues through the next through the Thanksgiving weekend and uh, and uh, into the next week, we could very much see uh, another potential cut by the OPEC yeah. plus group. Can India do enough buying to counter the EU sanctions? Because I could see a situation, Ed, where EU sanctions on Russian oil, so the Saudis actually buy Russian oil to use domestically and then export more of their oil to Europe and or India. How could that play out? That could play out, but the Indian issue is really an interesting one. We've noticed that in terms of known uh, taking of uh, Russian oil, scheduling of Russian oil by some private sector India refiners and some Chinese refiners, has tailed off, which means that uh, they are concerned, at least in the private sector in both of those countries, about the consequences of the new sanctions that are associated uh, with the yeah. European and the G7 deadlines on a price cap and on not importing Russian oil. So there's a cautionary tale there that is bullish as well, with India not being able to absorb more of the Russian crude as Europe eliminates another 700 plus thousand barrels a day of imports from Russia. Yeah, and we'll see... Um We'll see if the thawing, it didn't get a lot of attention, but the, yesterday the White House thawing the relationship with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and changing how he should be received in the United States. That was a big shift last night, not getting a lot of macro attention, but it should, and we'll see if that matters. Ed Morse, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. All right, coming up, more on the space race. No, not outer space. We're talking warehouse space. Jane Wells is here with why watching the warehouses really matters. Plus, Banksy over bonds, Van Gogh over crypto. Robert Frank is here with why art may be the best bet of all right now, and it is not only for the super rich. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Hope you're having a great Friday, everybody. Thanks for watching or listening on XM Sirius. By the way, markets, they're mixed. NASDAQ down a touch, about a half a percent. Dow Industrial is up about two-tenths of one percent, so not a big macro move. But as always, there are some individual movers at this hour and kind of a retail rally on Wall Street. You got shares of Ross, Foot Locker, The Gap, all higher, all reporting, by the way, better than expected earnings. Meantime, shares of the LGBTQT-focused dating app Grinder are surging on their public debut, they went public via a SPAC. And two names also in the green, Massimo and Cogent Communications. Who are these companies and why are we showing them to you? Because they were both on our weekly exclusive top insider buying segment this week. It's a segment that we do ev- almost every Friday on Worldwide Exchange, 5 a.m. Eastern. Tune in. And then also on CNBC Pro. Sign up today. Both of these stocks, by the way, had some of the biggest insider buys this week. Actually, Massimo 
Their CEO buying nearly $5 million worth. Cogent Communications, CCOI, also had some big buying. There are three more names on this week's list. We do five every week. Again, check it out on the show or CNBC Pro. All right, now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Brian, thank you very much. And here's what's happening at this hour with Nancy Pelosi stepping aside. New York Representative Hakeem Jeffries has announced he will seek to become the Democrats' next leader in the House. If elected, Jeffries would become the first black leader of a congressional caucus and the highest-ranking black lawmaker on Capitol Hill. The Justice Department is asking the Supreme Court to reinstate President Biden's student loan relief plan. A federal appeals court had blocked the program while a legal challenge by six states moves forward. The government argues that the stay of relief plan of the relief plan is leaving millions of vulnerable borrowers in limbo. Well, the dangerous lake effect snowstorm already dropped more than two feet of snow in some areas near New York City. Looks like Yellowstone, my goodness. Plenty more is on the way. State of emergency remains in effect for 11 New York counties. Welcome to winter, everybody. Brian, back to you. And apparently there's some chatter. They may move the the Buffalo-Cleveland game to, to Detroit. I think they have already done that. Have they done that? what I read. Yes, it's going to Detroit, which is a domed stadium. Uh, obviously um, uh, far away from where the snowstorm is. And, and Detroit is playing at New York this week, but I think Buffalo is playing at Detroit on Thursday, Thanksgiving. So Buffalo could just like hang out in Detroit for a week, Tyler. Maybe they, maybe they just stay there. Maybe they just stay. Why would you come back to Buffalo and go to the snow? That's it. Go to the you know Motor City Casino. Just have a great time. Oh, Tyler, yeah. thank you very much. See you, man. All right. Coming up, something is happening in the options market that we have not seen since boys to men and blues traveler were topping the charts. We'll tell you what it is and what it may tell you about the market. Stick around. All right, welcome back. The markets are looking to bounce back this month, but the bearish bets just keep getting bigger. The put-to-call ratio in the options market just hit its highest level since the mid-1990s the second highest reading ever. Essentially, investors have more appetite for downside protection relative to upside exposure. Or maybe they're just hedging. But it doesn't necessarily spell trouble for stocks. Joining us now to make sense, this is Mike Coe. He is co-founder and CEO of Optimized Advisors. Obviously, CNBC contributor and superstar has basically, you know, awesome show every 5.30. Don't roll your eyes. I'm giving you a promo for the 5.30 show, Mike. Um, do we read this as people being super bearish or just hedging long equity exposure? Yeah, so, uh, you know, historically, what the put call ratio was used for was actually a contrarian indicator. So generally speaking, in the past, when you started to see really big increases of put activity relative to calls, that suggested that everybody was getting on one side of the boat, getting excessively bearish. And that sort of gave the market an opportunity for a kind of an upside surprise. Uh, the big difference, I think, between the put-call ratio that we see today versus the one that we have experienced historically is that there's another big change that's going on in the options market, and that is the activity, the average trading volume that we see in very, very short dated options. I'm talking about options that expire the same day or one day uh, later or maybe just at the end of any given trading week. And that kind of activity doesn't really give us the same kind of barometer for market sentiment as you look out in time. Why is that? Because they expire at the end of the day or the end of tomorrow or the end of the week. 
Uh, and what this is really, I think, a function of is that there's an increased use by traders to make very, very short-term directional bets. And that isn't really a hedge. That's just making a bet on what might happen uh, in the very short period of time. These people might otherwise, for example, be trading futures. Yeah. And how long will it take for this kind of setup to play itself out then? I mean, it feels like it's kind of a like a little bit of a landmine. You know, you just don't know if it's going to go off or not. Well, that's a, you know, that's a really interesting observation, because one of the things that can happen if you have a lot of activity in very short dated options, uh, you have participants who might be buying calls, for example, the dealers, the market makers obviously have to hedge that activity. And that can have a reflexive effect. So it can contribute on any given day to actually an increase in volatility because you have both people buying upside calls, you have the dealers going out to hedge, and that convexity tends to be much higher as expiration approaches. And so that's when you can get these 50 and 100 point days in the S&P. Yeah, and it's truly a remarkable setup. Whenever we hear first time in 30 years, you wonder how it got this way, too, Mike. Like, what, what, what do you think triggered this kind of set? We just talked about what it means, but how do we get here? I mean, you wonder why everybody is so on one side. Well, there's a couple things going on. So first of all, if you take a look at the aggregate options volume that we see today, call it 40 million plus contracts, that's more than double what it was pre-pandemic. Now, we know that during the pandemic, when a lot of people were working from home or maybe not working at all, that there was a really big increase in the interest in trading options for self-directed investors and, and day traders. What's interesting is that actually more recently, as the proliferation in volumes in these short dated contracts has increased so much, is that there's a lot of institutional use on these very short dated uh, trades as well. If you go back to the 1990s, these things didn't exist. We didn't have zero days to expiration options. We didn't have weekly options at that time. And we had significantly wider spreads. You know, options would trade in eighths and quarters and three eighths wide. Now they can be, you know, a nickel to uh, even a penny wide in some cases. And that obviously encourages people who are going to go in there and, and play for very short term directional bets. And that's what I would emphasize here is that these are bets. Uh, these are not investment strategies at all. Mike Coe. Really appreciate it, my man. Good stuff. Good discussion. Thank you. All right. Well, we just talked about it. Be sure to catch Mike and the rest of the Options Action Gang tonight, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time, right after the 30-minute Fast Money. All right. Still ahead. We are T-minus one week until Black Friday. And whether or not you are ready for the holidays, that's your own business. But what about the supply chain? Well, for that, we're going to turn to Jane Wells, who is live in Linwood, California, which I've got a lot of questions. The first is, where is Linwood? Uh, it's not far from the ports. It's it's kind of between uh, Watts and San Pedro, Wilmington. Yeah, yeah. If you're if you're from here, you know what I'm talking about. It's a big port uh, destination for cargo. And yes, this Black Friday, it looks like the supply chain kinks have been worked out. Well, one reason is there are fewer ships coming here. California's losses, New York's gain. When we come back. I want to highlight a breaking story right now. NBC is reporting that Merrick Garland will name a special counsel to determine whether former President Trump should face charges.
special counsel will be named to address conflicts of interest. So this news now, NBC News saying that Merrick Garland will name a special counsel to decide if Trump should face charges. All right, ready or not, Christmas is only 37 days away, but the first real test for the supply chain comes next week with, of course, Black Friday. For more, let's turn out to Jane Wells, who is live at a warehouse. I looked it up. I should know, given that I lived as a kid in Gardena, California, where Linwood is. Jane, I, don't give me that. I, there's like 20 new cities that popped up there. Jane, what's going on in the warehouse? Uh, well, they are moving stuff. It's quite a bit different than when I was a, here a year ago. We came to this very warehouse one year ago during the worst of the supply chain crisis. And so we came back now to see what's changed and what's ahead. And what we've seen is the pendulum has really swung maybe too much in the other direction. I mean, this is a warehouse owned by Prologis, the largest warehouse REIT in the world. And it's uh, leased to a third-party logistics company called IDC. When we took this drone video a year ago, the ports were really backed up here. There weren't enough truckers to bring goods to this facility. Now, one year later, that's no longer a problem, which could be kind of a problem. They've got more space here, but fewer containers are coming in for two reasons. One, retailers are importing less from China as they work through too much inventory. And some of them have started shipping to the East Coast over the last year where there was more port space and they haven't come back. If you remember November 2021, the port had 160 vessels lining up, waiting to be unloaded. I think a few days ago, it was less than five. We see shifting of, of port traffic moving from the west to the east as just another way in which our customers are building resiliency into the supply chain. Now, scenes like this uh, from a year ago are one reason traffic has been rerouted to the East Coast. Container volume in local ports last month here was down about 20% from a year ago to levels not seen since 2009. And New York and New Jersey have been the number one ports for three months in a row. That is not good news here in Southern California, especially as contract talks with the longshoremen have stalled. Brian? Yeah, it's really been quite the shift, Jane. I mean, L.A. and Long Beach were the biggest forever. Now it's New York. And, but we're actually starting to see the good news for you guys is bad for us because now we're starting to have the backlogs on the East Coast. Well, I, I'm a little surprised that, and I realize how long it takes to turn the ship around and you had to reroute everything to go through the Panama Canal. I'm a little surprised more of that hasn't come back. The longshoreman situation here may be part of the reason, but the ports account for billions and billions of dollars to the local economy, and losing these ships permanently will be a big deal. It really is. Jane Wells, though, uh, and a shout-out to, by the way, everybody that's out there working to get the stuff on the shelves. We say Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all them. Jane, thank you. Yep. They're the ones that actually make it happen. All right, still ahead. Maybe we should call this a new CNBC segment, Mad Monet. Because let's talk art. Art collectors had a chance to buy their very own masterpieces at a major auction last week, and they went for big money. Robert Frank's got some of the eye-popping numbers. Hey, Brian, well, we have a Cezanne, a Surratt, and a Van Gogh. Each of these paintings sold for over $100 million each. That was part of the most expensive collection ever sold. We're gonna take a look at art as an inflation hedge, these soaring prices, and how you can get into the masterpiece market for as little as $500. Coming up.
Last week was a biggie for the ultra-wealthy fine art collector. Microsoft founder Paul Allen's private collection hit the auction block and brought in a record amount of Christie's, arguably one of, if not the greatest, private collections of all time. Robert Frank is here now with some of these just numbers. Yeah, it was definitely the most expensive collection ever sold. More than $2 billion of art sold in New York over the past week. That Paul Allen collection going for $1.6 billion, the most expensive collection ever sold. Buyers from around the world bid up prices, especially from Asia. Three of the top works of Van Gogh, Klimt, and Seurat all went for over $100 million. Now, the returns for sellers were strong. Warhol's White Disaster, which sold in 1987 for $660,000, that went for $85 million on Wednesday. Total art sales topping $65 billion this year. That was last year. This year likely to be even higher. The average collector now spending $274,000 a year. That's more than three times the average pre-COVID. It's young collectors that are really taking a big interest in art right now. Nearly half the bidders at Sotheby's last year were under the age of 40. Now, art has long been seen as an inflation hedge. The art market up 13% over the past 12 months. It's up 84% over the past 10 years. And you don't have to be a millionaire or billionaire to invest in art. You have companies like Masterworks and Yield Street creating these special funds, sort of like an ETF for a single Picasso, where you can invest in a artwork for less than $500. Okay, because that, when I saw you in the hallway, I said... Do you have to be really rich? I was going to say, Robert, do you have to be the secret life of the super rich to own this stuff? And you said no. No, and, and, and this market has become so big, the prices are going up so fast, that people think at some point soon it will be securitized and systemized in finance so that more and more people can buy shares. They can buy even shares of art loans. So this will be a securitized market in the not-too-distant future. All right. Stick around, because you've also brought us a top lender to the biggest art collections out there. Let's bring in another voice. That is Drew Watson. He is the head of art services for Bank of America, which I didn't even know was a thing. Drew, art services. For, is that, that's how big of a market this has become that they need a guy like you. Absolutely. Uh, The art lending industry is an over $20 billion a year industry, and it only continues to grow. Yeah, and to Robert's point, because listen, it's cool to talk about, you know, the Klimt that goes for 100 million or something, but that's like Powerball or Paul Allen money. What about for the regular CNBC viewer? Higher end demographic, obviously, but you know, a dentist in Des Moines. Can they get in on this game? Absolutely. Look, uh, there's a real disconnect in the art world between what you see in the big headlines uh, with the Paul Allen sale or, um, you know, major works that are breaking records and all of the art that is sold over the course of a normal sales season that's very accessible. Um, Most of the art that's sold, um, if you're just looking at it on a per-lot basis, is really under ten and five thousand dollars. So really accessible if you're looking at categories like photography, prints, etc. Um, for um, you know a broader demographic. And Drew, you studied the economics of art over a long period of time. What does it tell us about art during inflationary periods? And is it truly so far a hedge against inflation? Yeah, it's a really good question, Robert. So uh, savvy collectors often will view their art as a hedge against inflation, in part due to its liquidity profile. Um, 
However, one of the things to keep in mind is that with inflation uh, also means an increase in the carrying costs uh, of owning an art collection. So think about all the things that you need if you're an art collector, insurance, logistics, conservation, et cetera. All of the cost of that tend to go up in times of inflation. Also, as we've seen over the past couple of months, uh, if the Fed continues to raise interest rates to combat inflation, um, historically, we have seen that low interest rates typically correlate to a strong art market because it, the interest rates uh, can be seen as the opportunity cost of tying up capital right. in a non-income generating asset like art. So if we continue to see uh, raises in interest rates, you may see cooling in demand of the art market uh, due to that opportunity cost. Profile. Yeah, to that point, you mentioned lending is now a $20 billion a year business. I wonder how much of the collectors now are simply buying new art with the money that they've taken out of their existing collection. And to what extent that's at risk now that these art loans are probably way above even the mortgage rate of 7%. I don't know what the typical art loan is now, but probably more like 9 or 10%. Does that put at risk collectors buying new stuff? You know, not really. Um, well, the thing to remember about art lending is that it enables collectors to access capital that they have tied up in their art collection without having to sell their art. So a lot of times with collectors, the last thing that they want to do is sell their art because the very nature of collecting is amassing uh, these objects that you love living with, right? Um, and so if you sell art, of course, you not only you, you may free up some liquidity, but you also need to pay attention to transaction costs and also the tax treatment of art, um, which is taxed at a different rate than than other assets. Right. So, um, you know, an art loan can allow a collector to take their uh, mm -hmm. acquisition strategy to the next level by freeing up some of the capital that they have sitting in their art collection while continuing to enjoy the art on the walls of their home or office or wherever it may be. Yeah. Well, a comment and a question. First off, I looked them up on LinkedIn. I, it, this is also an informative segment for the kids out there that know that if they get a French and art history degree, they can also make Wall Street. Yes. Drew, Drew Watson. So, that, so there's, there's a, there's a <laughs> see, liberal arts are not dead. I was a liberal arts major. I love this. Drew, my dream, after I read a book called Short Nights and Shadow Catcher by Timothy Egan, Edward Curtis, black and white photographer, did um, Native Americans. It's just unbelievable. My dream is to own an Edward Curtis I probably never will. Um, what should we be buying that's not a million bucks? Yeah, look, there, there's a lot of opportunity for, for people who love art to get into the art market. Um, you know, what, what are some great entry-level categories? Really looking at, like I mentioned, at photography, at prints and multiples, um, and some, you know, more off the off the beaten path artists. You know, I think the bottom line is that it really depends on what your objectives are. Um, you know, do you have financial objectives? Is it really more aesthetically driven? There's also the social component of collecting. Uh, there's the philanthropic component of collecting. And are you involved with museums, et cetera? Um, so I would really encourage everyone to kind of look at those interest, in, uh, entry level categories, but also think about their objectives and what their strategy is. Collectors, One of the best pieces of advice I could give you is buy with your eyes, not with your ears, because there's a lot of noise out there. Yeah, co collectors always tell me just buy what you love and the rest takes care of itself. Last question, Drew. So far, this segment of the market and the art market has defied all economic gravity and fears of recession and the volatility we've seen in stocks and other assets. 
How long do you think that will continue? And do you think that this art market will truly be immune if we head into recession, if we see valuations for assets fall a lot more? Yeah. Yeah, so we continue to be, uh, you know, very surprised about the resilience of the art market. Yeah. Over the past couple of years, it's, it was supply constrained. Um, coming off of COVID, now we see a lot of supply coming to market, and, and sentiment has been very positive. Uh, because there is a lot of supply on the market right now with the return of in-person art fairs, new art fairs being added like Freeze Soul, Art Basel Paris, these major estates coming to auction, like the Paul Allen collection, the Getty collection, you've got a lot of supply and certain segments of the market are honestly struggling to absorb some of that supply. We're gonna to continue to see valuations remain stable um, because we're seeing strong bidding from both US and Asian buyers and also robust third party guarantee activity, which is helping bolster some of the sell through rates at auction this season. Yeah. Drew, we gotta leave it there, but great stuff. Robert, I'm right. telling you, when you go back on with Jim, the segment's got to be called Mad Monet. I I'm it. just, it's, I, 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 I get a credit. I get 10%, but you got it. Thanks very much. All right, coming up. Do you think the retail earnings parade is over? Nope. That's next. This was a big week for retail earnings. Next week brings more of the same and also Thanksgiving. With some big names reporting, including Best Buy, Dick's Sporting Goods, Dollar Tree, and Nordstrom, CBC.com's Melissa Repco getting a workout this week and next week, by the way. What are we watching for, Melissa? So there's a lot coming up. There's retailers really across the spectrum here. One of them is Best Buy. Another one is Dick's Sporting Goods. Both of those are companies that really saw a lot of benefits to the pandemic as people got computer monitors and stocked up on activewear for working out and, and working at home. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have Dollar Tree. And Dollar Tree could benefit from people being more price sensitive. Then again, it's low-income consumers maybe feeling more pinched by inflation. And then the final one that I'll be looking closely at is Nordstrom. Nordstrom has been struggling during the, the past two years of the pandemic. People weren't dressing up and getting suits and, and fancier things. And now They still that, aren't. We're like the only ones because we're on TV. That may be changing a little bit, though, actually. I hope so, what I've yeah. heard from a no lot ties. of retail analysts is people do want to dress up for those holiday parties again. And they also want to look for unique gifts. And so Nordstrom could be benefiting from that. Well, you know, you always hear, and it's kind of a running joke, and I'm not going to insult much of our audience. We have a high demographic. It's like, the high end will be okay. Of course the high end's going to be okay. They're, they're high end. They're, they're less subjected to wild swings of the economy. So with that in mind, I mean, we just looking at a Nordstrom and be like, they'll be fine. Well, there is part of that, but what we've learned this week is that shoppers are being more strategic about how they spend their money, more thoughtful. And value is not just about the price tag. It's also about the quality. And so... Jeff Gannett, I spoke to Jeff Gannett, Macy's CEO, and he was talking about how people can kind of mix and match their department yeah. stores. Of course, they include Bloomingdale's, but they also have a mix of goods. So people may say, I'm going to get a really high-end perfume, but then I'll cross the aisle and I'll get something from Macy's private label, a top that looks... What about Best Buy? Electro there's, it's like there's nothing hot with electronics, right? How many flat panels can we have? That is definitely a soft I just worry. Area. Not knocking them. I mean, electronics in general, you know, could be They tough. just saw so much pandemic yeah. growth. It'll right. be tricky. Melissa Repco, great stuff. We'll see you next week. We'll see all you next week. Power Lunch starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.